As you're turning there, I just wanted to thank all of you for your generous gifts and the books that uh, me and my wife were given by all of you as a welcome gift. Uh, but more than those things, I want to thank you for welcoming us in and loving us so well. You have uh, brought God much glory through doing that, and you've made us feel very loved and very welcome. So thank you for that. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. When man begun to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we come before you to listen to your word and to hear your word proclaimed, I pray that we would have the Spirit's work in our lives to be able to understand what these words mean for us, that we would be changed and our lives would be changed by the preaching of the word, God. We know that it is not up to merely our physical efforts to listen, but it is the work of the Spirit to interpret these things of the Bible so that we can be changed and so we can be a light in the world, God. So use this time for your glory and for our sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen. It is uh, good to have Jordan on board, isn't it? Working with our teenagers. And uh, we are thankful for him and for Shana. And uh, I would echo his thanks to all of you for uh, welcoming them. Um, the Lord uh, has graced us that that is a, uh, is a particularly warm welcome uh, that one receives um, when they come here. This week we are coming back to Genesis after a two-week uh, break for our missions conference. I do want to take another opportunity to thank our missions team for their hard work, uh, the hospitality team who helped them so much. Uh, in our missions conference, typically we are reminded of the necessity of keeping our eyes on the horizon of the ends of the earth, and that is a good and necessary reminder. But this year, uh, we were reminded that as we gaze toward that horizon, we should not overlook the horizon of our own community, that we ought to be concerned to take the gospel here, to live fruitful gospel lives here, to be salt and light here, to love our neighbors as ourselves here. And I want to also publicly praise God for uh, the, out, the initial outcome, at least, of the offering of praise for those who did not stick around. We usually have additional gifts come in, but so far we have received just over $40,000 uh, in our offering of praise. That is at least $2,500 over our goal for this year. Now, I did a little math. I mean, who doesn't like to do a little math? Any hands? Anybody not like to do a little math? All right. Well, I do like to do a little math. So I did a little math. And last week, in the building, there were 301 people. Not adults. People. Okay? That's kind of low for us. But what, do you, what does that mean? I mean, most people hear that and say, oh, it's such a low number. You know what? I hear that, and I hear $40,000 given. And what that comes out to is about $133 per person in the building was given last week. 
on top of our regular weekly giving that came through the regular offering that we take here in addition to whatever was collected online for our giving. Uh, you know, in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells uh, these Christians that they ought to excel in the grace of giving. And dear friends, last week, by God's grace, we excelled in that grace of giving. And we ought to praise the Lord for that. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. So now, and if there are, as there are updates, I'll let you know, but uh, it's all very exciting. Uh, we do need to dive right into Genesis 6 here this morning. Um, to this point, uh, we have seen the creation of all things by God. We have seen sin enter that creation through the disobedience and rebellion of Adam and Eve. It has begun to spread, and when we get to Genesis 6, we see that things are getting much worse. Even though there is this faithful line of Seth in Genesis 5, things are not getting better. Things are getting worse. Sin's shadowy hand has gripped every human heart, and it's holding on tight and it won't let go. And what we see here in these first eight verses is that God will not sit idly by while this continues. What we learn from Genesis 6, 1 to 8 is this, that the world's wickedness provokes God's judgment, but He still gives grace. The world's wickedness provokes God's judgment, but He still gives grace. Uh, if you were hoping that we would come to this uh, text today and you would receive uh, a seminary-level lecture on all of the intricate interpretive questions that are involved, especially in the first four verses, you will be sadly disappointed, because I'm not sure, in fact, I'm quite sure that this is not why God has given us this text, to only have long discussions about one thing or another. We are to, my role here in preaching this Word is to help us as best as possible clarify as much as possible what is here so that we can see what God is saying. So we will seek to do that. First, by thinking about here the ruin of mankind. As I said, sin has gotten worse. It started with Adam and Eve in the garden. It continued with their lineage as Cain kills Abel. It continues as you go down the line of Cain to Lamech, who is bragging about how he killed a young guy just for looking at him wrong. And we see by the time we get to Genesis 6 that things are pretty ruined, ruined by sin, ruined by our sin. Verse 1 says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, this is part of what God had said we ought to be doing as, uh, uh, as a race is uh, multiplying, filling the earth, but as men multiplied, sin multiplied. As there were more men and women on the earth, there was more sin on the earth. And so, in looking at these eight verses, I just want to point out three ways in which we see the ruin of mankind. We're going to see the response of God, but I want us to see the ruin of mankind. First, human beings wreck God's design. Look at verse 2. Let's start again in verse 1. Get a running start at what will have you asking questions for the rest of your life. 
When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, when you just glance at it, you might be tempted to think this is just a description of something that's happening, but it's actually something that's significant. It's something that is awful. It is something that is sinful. And we know that because of the very next verse, because the Lord says He's not going to put up with it anymore. So whatever is going on in verse 2 is bad. It is awful. It's wrecking God's design for the world and for human beings. The question is, what is happening here? Why is this so bad? And to answer that question, if you're new to the Bible, you may not actually be thinking there was much there to think about, but there is. There's a lot to think about. Uh, We have to think about this idea of the sons of God and the daughters of man, and it is a complicated and, quite frankly, unsolved issue. Now, at least by way of consensus, it's not solved. It's solved in the mind of God. It's, it's uh, jokingly said that if you get into a room with 10 Baptists, you'll have at least 12 opinions. <laughs> I found in reading commentaries, something similar takes place. I have six different commentaries that I'm using uh, as we journey through this part of Genesis. Six different commentaries, four different conclusions on who these sons of God are. Now, uh, that's not encouraging for the guy who wants to stand up and uh, say something about it uh, that Sunday morning. However, what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to briefly, and I do mean briefly, just tell you what these four opinions are. All right? The reason we're not going to spend a lot of time on this I mean, this, this subject has been, the, has been part something that people have written books on, okay? That's just the facts. Uh, and we could talk a whole hour. We could do a couple of hour-long sessions on all the interpretive things that go into trying to make a decision about who these sons of God are. But it would be a bit like looking at this picture. See that picture? We could look at that. I see trees in there. I see rock in there. We could talk about the way that, you know, what might have happened, what went into that. If we spent so much, if we spent all our time doing that, this is what we would miss. My goal is that second picture and not the first. And that's why I'm going to be brief in telling you about these four theories about who this is. The first theory is that uh, these sons of God are fallen angels, angelic beings, that in Job, uh, sons of God is a way that uh, the Bible refers to angelic beings. Um, this, is, this interpretation is backed up by uh, the apocryphal book of Enoch, First Enoch, and some will say that Second Peter and Jude Uh, uh, echo this, and so that's as much as I'm going to say about that one. Second, I'm not going to expound on all of these, but I will gladly copy off my commentaries. You're glad to, I'm glad to have you read them all. The second one is uh, human rulers or judges. Sons of the Most High is the way that the Bible refers to human rulers in Psalm 82.6. If you remember our study in the Psalms from this last summer, uh, there is a condemning word to uh, you are God, sons of the Most High in Psalm 82.6, a condemning word to these human rulers or judges. A third view combines both of these and says, well, it's likely demon-possessed kings or rulers. Uh, that fallen angels are involved, but remember Jesus says that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage, and so these demons would have to, much like in the Gospels, uh, take on uh, some human 
capacity by, you know, possessing a person. The fourth is uh, the godly line of Seth uh, is a way it's interpreted. Sons of the Lord your God is the way that uh, Deuteronomy 14 verse 1 refers to God's people. Same in Deuteronomy 32, 8. The idea of Israel as children of God is familiar. So uh, the way this goes is that in Genesis chapter 4, you have the wicked line of Cain. In Genesis chapter 5, you have the godly line of Seth. Because sons of God is a genitive, you could say godly sons uh, in, in much the same way, or even just keeping sons of God. And the idea is that there's intermarriage between the godly line of Seth and the wicked line of Cain. Now, is your head spinning yet? If it's not, you're not listening correctly, all right? So, fallen angels, human rulers, demon-possessed folk, or the godly line of Seth. Now, I read all of the arguments that I could find, plausible ones, but here's what I'm convinced of. I have my own thoughts, and if you're that interested in what I think, well, good for you. Uh, I have my own thoughts, but here's what I'm convinced of. When Moses stood up and said these things to the people of Israel, because that's how it first would have been communicated, is orally. When he said the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose, nobody in the crowd said, what's your theory on who's that, who that is? The reason why I'm convinced of that is because Moses doesn't go on to explain anything. He just leaves it like it is. The confusion is not on Moses' part. It's not even in the original writings part. The confusion is on our end. And actually, we have to remember when we come to things like this, that specific interpretive matters like this is not the point of the passage. Okay, We can actually get to the point without answering that question. Because the point is that they are wrecking God's design specifically for marriage. If it's fallen angels or demon-possessed rulers, you have this crossover between demonic beings and humans. That crosses a boundary that God said it's one man, one woman. There is no... Out, nothing outside of the human race. If it's the godly line of Seth intermarrying, well, then you have this wicked in, the intermarriage of the godly and the wicked, and we see that later condemned. If it's, if it's rulers who are basically taking harems and drawing in and, 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 and uh, participating in polygamy, then we see promiscuity and polygamy and sexual sin, and we see all of that. No matter which avenue you take, no matter which lane in this avenue of Genesis 6 you take, you are on the avenue of God's design being wrecked by human beings. The reason why I know that the fault lies with human beings is because God says his spirit, his spirit will not contend with man. Now, earlier in Genesis 3, God addressed the serpent. There is no the devil made me do it in Genesis 6, no matter what we say. Mankind is the one that's going to come under condemnation here. All of these theories mean that something precious something instituted by God, marriage, has been wrecked. Now, dear friends, that is happening today. Is it not? Now, for many of you, I don't read minds, but for many of you, my guess is that you thought of same-sex marriage immediately or of the divorce rate in America immediately, both of which are evidence that God's design is being wrecked. But every time a husband demands to be served rather than to serve, 
Every time he is harsh with his wife, every time a wife refuses to submit to her husband because it's beneath her, every time a wife returns evil for evil, every time we make love in a marriage a trade-off, a quid pro quo, I'll love you if you love me. Every time we step outside of the boundaries of God's teaching, we hurl another wrecking ball at marriage. You see, dear friends, this this whole idea of the ruin of mankind is not about the people out there. Do you know we can get so tied up in the theories of who these sons of God are and that we can talk about angels and demons and rulers and the godly line of Seth and we can have coffee and talk all day long and forget that this word was recorded according to Romans 15.4 in order to teach us, not to teach us the identity of the sons of God, but through encouragement that we might have hope. The only way we're going to have hope is to first know we are hopeless. Hopeless people go looking for hope. This reminds us that we are actually part of the problem with the world. Secondly, the ruin of mankind is seen because human beings rob God of His glory. Verse 4, the Nephilim who were were on the earth in those days and also afterward... When the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. So it seems that before that happened and after that happened, that's how that's phrased, the Nephilim are present. These were the mighty men who were of old. Uh, These men were larger than life, either in physical stature or just in their power and prowess or both. The, the name Nephilim means, it means to fall. It's, a, it's not hardly used in the Old Testament. It's used as a scare tactic in Numbers 13. But, but it essentially means to fall. So either they are falling on their enemies and their, or their enemies are falling in fear or both. But they have quite a reputation, quite a Wicked reputation, according to verse 5, because verse 5 says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. Right after describing the Nephilim and these great men, these aren't heroes, friends. Men of renown is literally men of name. These are men who want to make a name for themselves. They are the ones who want to be recognized. They are the ones whom you will cower before. You will bow before me. You will do as I want. We will take you by force if we have to, but you will do what I want. That's who these people are. But do you know what the desire of the godly is? Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul. Isaiah 26, 8. Human beings aren't meant to make a name for themselves. Friends, beware of wanting to be known. Beware of wanting to be great. Beware of wanting to be recognized. Beware of doing that in your company or in your service to the church. Beware of living with the eulogy at your funeral as your chief concern. Beware of refusing to be forgotten for the sake of one who is greater. Beware of resisting the mindset of John the Baptist that he must increase, I must decrease. These are people who took fame by force. You cowered beneath them. Whatever it is they were doing, we're describing no no activity except, you just want to stick with one word, the wickedness of man was great. This is lumped into this big idea that the wickedness of man is great. When we have to have respect, when we have to have acclaim, when we have to have applause... When we have to be recognized, 
We are clamoring for something that belongs to God alone. Do you know the more subtle way that this happens today? It's in the way that people in the evangelical world speak about our identity in Christ. It's not, it's not actually a bad thing to think about. God actually says things about us, that we are the sons of God, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that, that we are His children, all of these things. But the reason the Bible tells us about our identity in Christ is so that we will honor Christ, so that we will obey Christ, so that we will live as He desires. The Bible does not tell us about what God has done for us and the position He's given with us so that our self-esteem will increase. He has told us so that our Christ-esteem will increase. It is like this table. This table is not here to make us feel better about ourselves. To high-five one another. This table is here that we might fall before Jesus Christ and worship Him. Do not be fooled. What you think of Jesus Christ matters infinitely more than what you think of yourself. Do not rob God of His glory. The third thing about this ruin is that human beings rebel against God continually. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. John Calvin said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. And the same can be said of this verse more generally, that the human heart is a perpetual fountain of sin. Every intention. And this isn't just about motives. This is actually about making plans. If we ever wonder whether mankind is creative, look at, how, look at all the creative ways that we find to rebel against God. Look at all the ways we couch it inside other things. Just, just think. Sometimes we couch it in what we deserve. Sometimes we couch it in this will make me happy. Sometimes we couch it in relief. I mean, think, think about the last time you walked away from a situation and the conversation that you just ended went on in your mind, right? And in your mind, you gave just the slam dunk last word of that conversation. I mean, you gave the what for and you dropped the mic and you walked away and nobody could say anything. Just think about the last time you did that. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart were evil, only evil, continually. Later we'll see next week, violence filled the earth. And it's every intention of the heart. The heart is not just some New Testament idea that we wait. You know, everything in the Old Testament is external, and then Jesus really takes things to the heart. No, no, no. Jesus is just reiterating what the Old Testament already said, and he's putting the emphasis there. Stop just thinking about the exterior. It's the intentions of the heart. It's the very control center of your life. Proverbs 4 will tell you to guard your heart with all vigilance. As a man is in his heart, so is he. 
The sinful heart is a perpetual fountain of sinful sludge. That's what we see here. It's the ruin of mankind. We've wrecked God's design. We seek to rob God of His glory. And we rebel against Him continually. Can you not look around you and say the world is very much the same as it was in Genesis chapter 6? Can you not look in the mirror and say there's someone who continues to add to the problem? Well, that's the ruin of mankind, but as I said, God's not going to sit idly by, so we see the response of God going to move in uh, what I think is the logic order rather than just the order that they appear. First, God perceives all our sin. That's what we just read in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The Lord saw. Nothing escapes His notice. Right? Psalm 139. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night... Even the darkness is not dark to you, for night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. That is comforting to the one who walks with the Lord, and it is terrifying for the one in sin. Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Can you think of everything that you did this last week? Did you ever come to some point and you you just think, I I can't even think of all the ways that I stepped out of bounds today. I can't even think of all the sins that I've committed today. You know who has no problem? The omniscient God. I can't, even, I can't even remember. Well, I can remember what I did this week because mostly I was laying flat on my side in the bed reading Genesis commentaries like this, hoping that the flu would go away. That's what I did this week. But most weeks I can't remember. I can't even remember all that I did, but God sees everything. Everything. We may appear one thing to others, even to those closest to us, but the Lord sees through all our charades. He misses nothing. Brothers, you may delete your browser history, but He sees it. Sisters, you may commit adultery in another city, but He sees it. Kids, you may keep it from your parents, but He sees it. He perceives all our sin. Not only that, He is pained. Verse 6 and 7, And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. The end of verse 7, I am, the Lord says, I am sorry that I have made them. Now, this regret, this being sorry for having made man, this is not the same kind of regret or sorrow that you and I have. Because when you and I have regret, you know what we've done? Oops, right? We made a mistake. I sinned again. I made an error. I came up short. I couldn't get it done. That is not the case with God. God makes no mistakes. But this language reminds us of something important, something that is precious to us as Christians. You see, while God is transcendent, while He is separate and superior, while He does, but while that is true, He does not simply sit on the sidelines of human history and just watch from afar and keep a tally pad. Not only is God transcendent, He is imminent. He is actively involved in this world. He is sovereign over every moment of history. His hand is on it all. At no time is He out of control, even when everything is spiraling downward in the pages that we read. There's nothing outside of His control. But He is not an apathetic or dispassionate God. 
He is grieved to the heart. That's what it says of him. So either we have to explain away this language, or we just have to say that even being sovereign over all things, God cares so much about what he has done and his plans, and he hates sin so much that it grieves him. This is why we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. God is not saying, oops, God is looking at what he, God knows what he, what man would have been had sin not happened. And now we're here. He sees, he perceives, he is pained, and his patience runs out. That's what verse 3 is about. The Lord said, my spirit shall not abide or contend. Uh, It's not an easy Hebrew word. Um, because it only appears there, will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120. The Lord is not going to tolerate this. Why? Because he is flesh. Not because we are flesh and blood so much. Not because we are mortal, but because we are immoral. So think, it's not the same word because we're talking Hebrew versus Greek, but think in the way that Paul often talks about the flesh. And what's this business of 120 years? I mean, doesn't Moses know that later on the lifespans are still really long? Well, yes, he does. In fact, he's going to write that lifespans are 70 years, and if you have strength, 80. This is not about lifespans. This is the countdown. This is the egg timer to the flood. This is the countdown clock. Now, you say, now, hold on a second, right? Somebody's hand goes up in the back, the math geniuses in the, in the room. Good for you. You like to do a little math, do you? So you, you look at the end of chapter 5 and you see, now wait a second, it says when Noah was 500 years old, he had three, he's had sons. And then, later in chapter 6, it says when he's 600 years old, that's when the, the rain starts. Now, now, how can that be? That's only 100 years. It's a good question. But I want you to notice something. Look down beyond our text to verses 9 and 10, where it says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, wait a second. Why would it have to repeat that? Why would we have to repeat that? Is it possible that these are not in chronological order necessarily? That this chapter 6 verses 1 to 8 is put into here as the setting for all that's going to come after it. That's what I understand it to be. I understand God to be saying in verse 3, I'm not going to put up with this in 120 years. It's over. The patience of God is wonderful, dear friends. It is glorious, isn't it? Aren't you thankful that God is patient with you? Can I tell you something about patience? It's not endless. God is not a moral jellyfish. He's not a doormat. If God were eternally patient, no one would end up condemned. What he's saying is his patience will run out and judgment will come. In 2 Peter, Peter speaks of the promise of Jesus coming, which will mean judgment for the false teachers he's speaking about. But why is God so slow to keep this promise, Peter? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Dear friends, the final and eternal judgment is coming. But right now, God is patient. Today you will hear yet another offer to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. What is that? It's another call from our patient God. You woke up this morning breathing air that's not yours, with muscular capacity that's enabled by the God of the universe. What is that? 
It's another day of patience. But make no mistake. God's patience will run out. Judgment will come. And that's what's next. His punishment is sure. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. The ruin of mankind will not be the last word. Sin will not have the last word. God will blot out mankind. He will bring judgment. This is a sober pronouncement. Friends, listen. We can get so familiar with the Bible that these warnings of judgment almost come across pedestrian when we read them. We just gloss right through them. Do not read them quickly. Do not read them lightheartedly. Phrases like outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, Or Revelation 14, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. No rest. God's punishment is sure. It is no idle threat. And know this, everyone who faces it, everyone who endures it, deserves it. Because all have sinned. But... It's a great way to start the last verse, isn't it? But his provision, lastly, is sweet. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The the text ends with an upturn. You'd just expect there to be a cliff after verse 7, wouldn't you? And like mankind is just going to drive off the edge of it and go down, and that's it. But it's not it. Not every single person on earth will die. God will spare. This phrase, finding favor, is important. It is not a reflection of Noah's achievement. Even though he is a righteous man, he does walk by faith, It's not a statement of his achievement, though, so much as it is a statement of God's goodness. If you just go through the Old Testament and you find the phrase, if I have found favor in your sight, if I have found favor, a lot of times it's people talking to God, and sometimes, like in Esther, it's, it's Esther talking to the king, if I have found favor in your sight. They are not coming to say, you owe me. These are the words of an inferior to a superior, recognizing that any favor, any gracious disposition, any blessing comes as a result of the will of the one giving, not the merit of the one receiving. And that's the case here. Finding favor for Noah, finding favor with God is a matter of God willingly giving it, not based on any merit in Noah but based on the goodness of God. God God will blot out mankind from the face of the earth. And God will graciously save. Both and. Not just one or the other. And the same is true today. As we look at our world, as we look at our lives... Can't we see ruin? We've wrecked God's design, not just for marriage, but for life in His world. We rob God of His glory, seeking to exalt ourselves in the eyes of others or in our own eyes. 
We rebel against Him continually in our lives, in our hearts, both publicly and privately. And God sees it. He sees every square inch of the swamp of sin in our lives. And it pains Him, and though He is patient, His patience will not last forever. His punishment, His eternal, terrifying punishment is sure. The world's wickedness, our wickedness, provokes God's judgment, but He still gives grace. We deserve nothing but punishment, but God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. He came to be our substitute on the cross. He, using the language of Revelation 14, He drank the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of the Father's anger so that we could find favor with God and drink in His love poured full strength in the cup of His grace. You see, friends, we will either endure the wrath of God forever or we will enjoy the love of God forever. The question for each of us is this. Which will it be? There are only two cups. The cup of God's wrath or the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Which cup is yours? Friends, turn to Jesus Christ by faith and be saved. Can we bow our heads for just a moment? We're going to take a moment to reflect on the teaching of the Bible and I will pray and then we'll collect our benevolence offering, but I just want us to think on that. We will either endure the wrath of God forever or we will enjoy the love of God forever. Where you are right now, which will it be? And having the answer to that question, if it is the love of God, praise Him for it. If it is the wrath of God, plead with Him for forgiveness. Turn to Jesus. Our Father, it does not take much for us to be convinced of the ruin in the world around us. It does not take much to be convinced of the ruin within us. We thank you that you have spoken clearly in your word, not just in one place, but throughout the scriptures to the real and lasting problem of mankind. It is a sobering and humbling thought to think on our sin and to think of the just punishment that our sin deserves. We 
we pray that a sobering look at your response to sin in judgment will cause us to rejoice all the more in the grace that you have given us, will cause us to tremble at thinking lightly of sin in any way, will cause us to take seriously the eternal destiny of those around us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray Father we pray that we would not be a congregation who takes sin lightly or that takes your grace lightly I pray for those among us who at this moment only have the cup of your wrath waiting for them. Convince them that such wrath will come. Open their eyes to the reality of their sin and the beauty of what Jesus has done in dying in our place. Draw them to Yourself, Lord, by the power of Your Spirit. We thank You as those who know the Lord Jesus Christ that we have found favor in Your eyes. And we confess once again with our long-departed brother, we are great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. May we live and sing and love others and follow Jesus and take the gospel to the end of the street and take the gospel to the ends of the world and do our jobs and parent our children and love our spouses as those who know that great Savior, Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.